In this show, where we had a lot of fun, we talked to the neuroscientist Stuart Feierstein about his counterintuitive thinking on ignorance and failure as propelling forces in problem solving and innovation. If you're interested in creating a culture of experimentation in your organization, this will be a useful 40 minutes of your day. Welcome to The Evolving Leader. I'm Scott Allender, co-host of the show, and with me, as always, uh, a man who has forgotten more things than most people know, John Gomes. John, I'm not sure if that was an insult or a compliment, but... Well, I'm not rising yeah. to it, so that, that, <laughs> that is it. So, hello, Scott. Um, hello, how are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling positively beguiled by um, talking to our guest this week because I've read his books and they are wonderful. So, Scott, how are you feeling? Uh, I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling glad it's Friday, but even more than that, I am excited. I'm curious, and I'm energized to be with our guest today, Professor Stuart Firestein, accomplished author and a leading neuroscientist who started his career in the theater in the 1970s. We're going to definitely need to ask him about that. Uh, he's here today to talk with us about some counterintuitive ways of thinking about making progress against our goals. He's written. Two separate and incredibly useful books uh, entitled Ignorance and Failure. Yeah, and as I said, I absolutely love these books. I've, um, I should say up front, we're not here to talk about neuroscience. These are two incredibly relevant areas of thinking. Um, and they, they really speak to the fact that increasingly organizations now, and leaders in organizations, are having to think about experimentation um, to navigate their way through complexity in terms of product development and building growth engines. They cut to the heart of figuring things out in uncharted waters. Professor, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation, the opportunity to talk to your audience and to you. Well, so before we uh, can get into any of this uh, and, and talk about how we think productively about ignorance and failure, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Um, particularly, I'm, I'm really curious about from theater to neuroscience must be quite a story. Yeah, it's, it, it must be quite a story or it should be quite a story, but actually it's not. Oh. <laughs> it's, very, it's very disappointing because I get this question a lot because it seems so unusual. So you'd think there'd be some great story behind it, but no matter how I try and sort of fluff it up a bit, it's not really that interesting. So I'll tell you just a tiny bit about it and we can, we can go on. I did start working in the theater right out of high school here. So I was 18 or 19 years old because in those days, if you wanted to work in the professional theater, you apprenticed yourself. You did it through an apprenticeship. And so that's what I did, and I did that for a number of years, working my way up from schlepping scenery around to stage managing and finally mostly directing. So I finished my career mm -hmm. in the theater as a director, and I did this for about 15 or so years. And I'd always had an interest in science, in particular in animal behavior. I had some uh, sort of cockamamie idea at one point that I would put together a company and we would do some experimental sort of piece on um, on human-animal relations and through history and religion and social and all the rest of this sort of thing. And so I decided to take a class. I'd never been to college. I decided to take a class at the local state university. I was then living in San Francisco. Took a class from a wonderful guy named Hal Markowitz, who was a great mentor. He, sorry to say, passed away a few years ago. Um, 
and uh, and I thought I'm sitting in this class, and I and, and he's standing up there telling me everything he knows about animal communication, as it turns out. And I thought, well, this is really a cool idea, right? I'd sit here, some guy stands there and tells me everything he knows about something. I, who thought of this? You know, I think it was actually Aristotle or someone like that. But I was just catching up. Anyway, the the only important thing about it, I think, so I I wound up taking this course. I liked it. I began taking some other courses. Eventually. Um, he suggested I, I get take courses and get a degree in biology. Why not? So I thought, well, I don't know. What will I do with that? But I did and continued working in the theater. It really wasn't until I got a BA, a, a bachelor's degree in biology, and realized that that was a fairly worthless thing to have, in fact, <laughs> unless you were going to go on, that I applied to graduate schools. And um, I just thought, well, if I get into graduate school, I'll leave the theater and try something new because... Why not? You live twice as long these days. You might as well try a couple of careers if you can. And so I got turned down most places. I was by this time 35 years old. So I was a little old to be applying as a graduate student, especially in those days, 1980s. But I eventually got accepted to Berkeley. I'm fond of saying I think as the result of a clerical error, but that's okay. You know, <laughs> I, I said yes immediately. And that was it. And I've, I've been lucky to have great mentors all the way along. I think that's the most important part of the story is number one that that I learned in the theater the importance of an apprenticeship that I still think there's no better way to learn a field to understand a field to advance in any field of endeavor than through a, a apprenticeship and of course that includes important the importance of mentors and mentorship and, and those two ingredients are just critical I still feel that way in science I mean I think graduate students are effectively they're not we call them students that's a terrible misnomer Graduate school is not school. It's an apprenticeship. Mm. These, these kids come to us at 22 or 23 years old, and it's our job as mentors to turn them into colleagues. And I think that should be the case in virtually every area that, that we work in, that we take young, younger people or whoever as interns, as apprentices, and, and our job is to turn them into colleagues. Mm, I love that. So that's that story, and that's the best I can make of it. Well, you're wrong. It is an interesting story. <laughs> well, what, what's, what's really fascinating is about. I've been wrong before. <laughs> well, what's fascinating is to is that you know you are like fifteen years behind everybody else, and then you become a world leading neuroscientist. I mean, that's not a that's not a boring story. It's a really interesting story because. Well, I'm it just goes to show you that neuroscience is not rocket science. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we all so, think it is, but um, yeah. my my daughter who's studying neuroscience tells me it is. So. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, the way, the way I, you know, I tell most people that too. Why not? <laughs> so let's start with ignorance. Um, something Scott knows quite a lot about, but um, hey. but I think you might know know a little bit more. Um, what first led you to to lecture and then to write about that as a subject? Yeah. So uh, well, so first of all, I should say I don't actually lecture about it, at least not to students. Um, I mean, I give talks or seminars on the things like that now, yeah. but. But it started as a class, started as an idea for a class, and it started because my normal teaching responsibilities, I'm at Columbia University, I'm a professor there, and I run a laboratory, and I also teach. And um, the class that I teach is called Cell and Molecular Neuroscience 1, so it's a pretty daunting-sounding thing. And we use this giant textbook by three eminent neuroscientists, uh, um, which is really large. It's 1,414 pages. I looked it up on Amazon. It weighs 7.7 .7 pounds. That's its shipping weight. So I'll just point out that that's twice the weight of an adult human brain. 
Again, it's a book about the brain, so this seems already not quite right. And then I would give 23 lectures full of facts and all that, and I began to realize that by the end of it all, these students must have had two very wrong ideas. One was that um, we must know almost all there is to know about the brain. After all, we have this big fat book in my lectures, and that's clearly not true. And secondly, that science is about people, scientists, doing experiments, finding things out, getting facts, and putting them in these big books, these encyclopedic sort of things for them to memorize and be tested on. And that's not true either. I mean, that's not my experience of science. My experience of science is going to a conference, sleeping through a couple of talks, and then heading for the bar and talking, you know, and then talking about what, what it is we got to figure out here. What don't we know? What haven't we figured out, you know, with colleagues? And so, and of course, also running a laboratory, I spend all my days with graduate students and postdocs thinking about the stuff we don't know, the problems, the questions, what are we going to do with them? And, and that's really exhilarating and challenging and all the rest of that. And so I, I began to recognize there's this, there's this fundamental difference between the pursuit of science and the perception of science. And that this gulf was not doing anybody any good. It was distorting the view of science in the public mind. And I think turning a lot of people off to science who could otherwise participate in what I still consider to be the greatest adventure in the last 500 years of mankind's existence on the planet. So, um, so I thought, well, we should be thinking more about the questions. We should be teaching these kids about the questions. So, I don't know, it popped into my head one day, I'll start a class on ignorance. I'll call this class ignorance. I call it ignorance, of course, to be somewhat intentionally provocative because I don't mean stupidity or a callous indifference to facts. I mean this kind of the stuff we don't know, the mysteries that, that are around. And the, the idea of the class was that I would invite uh, colleagues, members of the faculty and members of the science faculty at Columbia to come in once a week for a sort of seminar course and spend two hours talking to a group of students about what they don't know. What's their question? Why are they asking this question? Why this question and not that question? What makes this question important? How will you get to this question? What are your ideas about it? What if you answer it? What will be the next thing, do you think? What if you don't answer it? I mean, how important will it be to get it answered? All of these sorts of ideas. Um, I like to joke, I, you know, I would call professors, I'd call other faculty members on the, on the phone and say, uh, Hi, listen, I'm running a course on ignorance, and I think you'd be perfect for it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but they all agreed eventually, of course, yes, of course, that's what I do, you know. And, and my direction to them was always, they'd say, well, what do you want me to do to prepare for this? And I would say, absolutely nothing. I don't want a PowerPoint. I don't want a lecture. I don't want you at the blackboard. I don't want anything. We're going to start out with a conversation. I want you to come into this class the way you walk into your laboratory every morning worrying about and thinking about the questions you're going to confront that day, what the lab is up to. And then we'll talk and we'll see where it goes from there. And remarkably, it goes on for two hours. Um, and and uh, there it is. <laughs> so that, that's how ignorance was born. You talk about, just to pull on that a little bit more, you talk about mm -hmm. this sort of culture of answer seeking is what's driving education. And to your point right now is, you know, questions are bigger. They, they yield more layers of, of answers and can inspire, you know, research that goes on for decades. In fact, I think at one of your, at the end of one of your Ted talks, I loved this. You said, I hope I got it right. You said, um, instead of, you know, asking a question of a student and saying, what is the answer? Give that student the answer and ask them, 
Now, what is the next question? Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, I, I mean, I think the, the, the idea is that, that the best answers, well, I'm, now I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing a line from E.E. E. Cummings, as it turns out, who says, I think something like, always the most beautiful answer that gives rise to the most beautiful question, to a more beautiful question or something to that effect. And so, and so yes, I mean, we want answers. We want facts. Listen, if you want to be a scientist, you have to know a lot of stuff. If you want to be a lawyer, you need to know a lot of stuff. If you want to be a plumber, you need to know stuff. I mean, knowing stuff is not useless, of course. The question is, we spend years and years educating our kids, uh, educating ourselves, um, gaining all this knowledge, but we never give much thought to what we're going to do with it besides, you know, enter into some profession. But finally, what are we really going to do with this knowledge? And I think what we fundamentally want to do with this knowledge is we want to ask better questions, that the best kinds of knowledge leads to better ignorance, if you will, more sophisticated ignorance, uh, more interesting, deeper questions. And, and that's really the idea behind this, this, this notion of ignorance being so important and dynamic. Now, I will say that, that you know, there's a problem in education. I'm not one of these people who beats the education system up, who says, oh, we take creative kids and they spend 12 or 15 years being educated into really dull adults. I mean, yeah, that, that may go on, but I guess they would become dull adults anyway, to tell you the truth. I don't think it's just the education system. I know plenty of dull adults and it had nothing to do with their education. I still think it's better to be educated than not educated. So that's not to say there aren't difficulties. And I think one of them is that, that instead of teaching kids to ask questions or the value of questions, we try and, you know, we, we give them facts and we test them on that. Now, mm. what do we do about that? I, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent about education, but, but I, I think we've all known, we all know that there's a problem with education for years and we all have kind of ideas about what should be done about it. I mean, the way it should be fixed, that it shouldn't just be all these facts and memorization and things of that nature, you know, what I call the bulimic model of education, where you ram a bunch of facts down the kids' throats and then they puke it up on some exam and then they move on to the next unit with no appreciable gain at all, right, you know. So, so we know that's not right, but frankly, we've known that since John Dewey wrote about this 100 years ago, you know. So the question in my mind is not what to do about it. It's what are the obstacles to getting these reforms done? What are the obstacles to, to changing education? Because I think we know what to do, but we don't seem to be able to do it. I have some ideas about what those obstacles are. We could talk about that later, but, but um, and I think they're, they can be overcome. Um, but, but I think that's what we ought to be thinking, is not what we need to do about education. We know that. We need to know, figure out why we can't get it done. So I love the way that you, you, you have a much more nuanced view around what ignorance is, because for most people, it's a, it's a, it's a pejorative term. You know, it might mean you're, you, you're not particularly intelligent or knowledgeable or competent or whatever, but you're, you're using the word ignorance in lots of different ways to describe the opportunities that, that are in front of us. In, and you use this, uh, this thing about the cat in the dark room can you just tell us about that? It's a favorite little thing that I, I can't now remember where, I think one of the people who came, one of the uh, um, scientists who came to the class sort of threw this off somewhere along the line, like, but I can't remember it. So unfortunately, I, I mean, he didn't have a source for it. It was an anonymous, it's an old proverb. And I just don't remember who exactly said it. 
Um, so I, I can't even source it properly. But, but the phrase is, it's very difficult to find a black cat in a dark room, especially when there is no cat. And, and that, to me, is a perfect description of science, even though I think it's not the one that most people would think of. I think most people think of science as this sort of brotherhood of, uh, of workers who abide by the scientific method, and we have a bunch of rules and recipes, and we follow them very closely, and that's how science progresses. But this is not the case at all. It's a madhouse most of the time. And, and in fact, it's really, as I like to say, it's, it's really kind of farting around in the dark. I mean, that's mostly what we do or when we do it best, that's <laughs> the way it works. Or if you will, stumbling around in dark rooms because there's been some report of a black cat in the area and looking for it. And eventually you find a light switch somewhere, you turn the lights on, there may or may not be a cat in there, I don't know, but you suddenly see, oh, well, it's that. But, but what you do with that is just go, you know, you find the door to the next dark room and look for the next black cat that may or may not be there. But that's, that's really exciting, right? That's really an adventure. That means you're, mm. you're on to something. You're, you know, you're, well, it's a great search, right? It's, it's a lot of fun to do, which I think is very important. Um, science may not sound like fun to many people who don't do it. It sounds like some sort of drudgery or whatever, but it's just not the case. It's the most fun a person can have, if you ask me. And I worked in the theater, which is a lot of fun, let me tell you. But... <laughs> I'm having more fun now. <laughs> so with this like new working definition of, of ignorance in our minds, what are, what are the implications to leaders, uh, not just in science, but everywhere? Well, I, I, I particularly like to use the term that, that I was put onto by a fellow named Jonathan Weiner, who's a journalist, a science journalist, this idea of negative capability which is in a, um, a term that was coined by the poet John Keats in a letter to his brother, uh, in which he said it's, um, I'm now going to have to paraphrase it because I don't remember the exact quote, but, but that um, it's the ability, negative capability is the ability for, to, for man, of course now we would presumably say a person, I hope, but for a person to remain in, in mysteries and unknowns and ignorance essentially without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. And, and the notion is that to be able to have patience with what you don't know, patience with ignorance and patience with mystery, because this is where the creative things occur. This is where the interesting stuff happens uh, in, in the realm of what you don't know is really where you, you become the most creative, where teams become the most creative, where people can cooperate because you don't know. I mean, I, I always remember lab meetings that we have. There's a, a, a typical thing in lab meetings, and this would be true of any meeting, any team meeting, and any, any other endeavor, I suppose. You know, somebody is presenting, and they're presenting data, and they have graphs and this and that and so forth, and everybody's half asleep or wandering off or doing emails or whoever knows what they're doing until somebody says, and then I did this experiment, and I can't figure out what the hell is going on. And I can't figure out what's going on. I've done this experiment 20 times, and I can't get it to work. And all of a sudden, everybody perks up around the table. Ah, well, did you try this? Maybe we could do that, or it could be this, or this or that. And, and then now suddenly it becomes exciting. And so it's precisely at that point where something is happening that we don't know about that is the most interesting part of the game. And so that's why I think we, we want to, we would like to somehow or another improve our negative capability to work on that and to understand that patience is, patience is something that we, we're really bad at these days. Um, 
I think we're partially trained to that. We see headlines every day, some new advance in science, some new gadget is here, some new big announcement, some new technology advancement. We, we rarely recognize that behind that new advance was probably seven, eight, nine, ten years of work. Mm. It's just that there's so much work going on that there's a new headline every day. But that's not how fast they really happen. And so I, I think we need to, to cultivate that sort of patience with mystery and ignorance. Do our brains, from a neuroscience perspective, do our brains fight us on that? Because if it's, you know, as I understand it, you know, we, we crave certainty, you know, maybe more than anything else. We want to know how to categorize things, right? So staying with the mystery, is it, it, do, are we kind of at odds with ourselves naturally in that space? I think a little bit, but not entirely, not as much as people um, suggest often. Uh, yes. So, so our brains, there's a, there's a certain part of our brains that, that does seem to look for certainty because after all, you, you know, you, you want to make decisions about things. I mean, I, I don't really mean to use some old time hunting thing or something like that, but you know, if you hear some, something rustling in the brush, you can think, well, maybe it's the wind or maybe it's a big tiger. And you're better off thinking, it's a big tiger. I'm getting the hell out of here. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the better way. Make the decision and get on the move because, you know, the indecisiveness can lead to down some fairly bad areas. So, yes, to some extent, there are pieces of our brain that, that, that probably do want certainty. But we don't have to be a prisoner to those pieces of our brain. We don't. We don't hunt tigers or hunt in the forest anymore. We have different kinds of hunting. And yes, uncertainty can occasionally lead to disaster, but it often leads to really interesting places instead. And so we can cultivate that. We don't have to be imprisoned by this kind of, by these sort of innate brain um, processes. And there's also an interesting side on this. Recent, some recent studies in psychiatry have shown that one of the symptoms of depression actually is certainty. So if you think about it, certainty is not really the best strategy, uh, even mentally speaking. So people who are definitely certain about the way things are going to go are somewhat depressed because, after all, there's a loss of agency. Well, no, it's, you know, this is how it's going to work out. This is how things go. Um, it's, it's already in the cards. So what am I going to do about it? What do I have to do? Why should I do anything? So, so really, although uncertainty may create a certain level of anxiety, if you think about it correctly, it also creates a tremendous amount of opportunity that's not there in the, in the realm of certainty. In the realm of certainty, you're done, right? The story is over. The game is over. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find us at Evolving Leader. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. So I, I, I have been looking forward to hearing you unpack the notion of unpredicting. I have not heard that phrase before. I came across it with you. So, um, and in that is something about the ends of the spectrum of prediction. Um, so what is unpredicting and, and, and what's your experience of how it works in practice? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not even really sure exactly where that word came from. It just spilled out when I was writing because there were a lot of talk about predictions and, um, and, and we, we have a tendency to predict. So I thought, well, we should contrast this. We should see what unpredicting would be like because predictions often trap us. I'm, I mean, I think that's a, that's a problem. You make a prediction about what's going to happen or what we're going to find out, and suddenly you go down that road, and then you become less, um, 
I, would, I, I guess I would use the word pluralistic in your thinking. You tend to focus on, on something. You tend to, there's, you know, there's confirmation bias and all of those things that come with predicting too early on what you think the result might be, where you think things might going might be going then you only see the things that point that way and you don't see the anomalies and all of all of those things we we know about and and little by little you're stuck in some little crevice somewhere some little corner um and and you don't know how to get out of that corner and and that's not good of course so so we have to be careful with predictions i mean you know the there's the famous yogi burra phrase our great american philosopher probably the greatest american philosopher <laughs> yogi burra baseball manager part time <laughs> um, <laughs> who said you know the future ain't what it used to be and <laughs> i think he's exactly right of course um, it it never is um and so and, and so we should be careful about predictions and i think the way to get around that is to make predictions by sort of asking questions, if you will, by using questions to say, well, here are the questions of the future, not here are the things we'll know in the future, but here are potential questions. And we won't even be great at that, to tell you the truth, because there's so many questions we can't see. There's a wonderful quote. I hate to keep using quotes, but I, I you know, I, I think if somebody said something clever, they shouldn't be left out of the conversation just because they're dead. I mean, you know, it's still useful. We all hope that, don't we? <laughs> right. We all, nobody's <laughs> going to be happy about being left out once you're dead, you know. Also, I think it's important to recognize that this kind of conversation has actually been going on for a long time, and it will continue to go on, and we should jump into the flow and be part of it and add what we can. So this particular quote is from a fellow named J.B.S. Haldane, who was an English evolutionary biologist, one of the early evolutionary, this is in the mid-20th century, 1950s or so, uh, 1920s, I guess, a little earlier. And he introduced, one of the first people to introduce mathematics into biology and evolutionary biology. In any case, he was giving a talk, and, and he, he had this quote, um, which he said, not only is the universe stranger than we think, it is stranger than we can think. Um, and, and that's a really interesting idea, it seems to me. Now, that may make it sound like, well, you know, we just don't have the cognitive ability to think about some things. But, but that's not actually, first of all, it's not the case. Because since he gave that talk in 1929, we've thought of some really strange shit, right? Quantum particles, epigenetics, the microbiome, oh, the internet. I mean, you know, some really strange stuff has been thought of since he said that, that we never could have imagined. I mean, even 40 or 50 years ago, the idea of plugging two computers together would, would have been as silly as plugging two refrigerators together, right? I mean, it's just, it wouldn't have entered your thinking. And Haldane himself actually was talking about the fact that he was looking forward to being surprised by the future, by being surprised by the fact that there are things that he can't possibly even imagine yet, but that will be imagined by future people, as it were. And so, um, and so that's the idea for me about unpredicting, that, that you want to be surprised by these things. You, you want to leave yourself open to surprise and not be too careful about predicting where things will go. So can we turn to um, failure? We had um, Dr. Kay Kim on recently talking about creativity and how it's being systematically expunged from the education system because we only value answers and has eliminated learning through failure. What, what do you think we need to rethink uh, our relationship with failure? So, so for me, I like to use failure in the same way that I've tried to unpack ignorance and give it more meanings than we typically use it in a common way. I'd like to do the same thing to some extent with failure. 
there are lots of tropes about failure that you can find in the sort of self-help aisle. I'm not, I'm not accusing anybody else of this necessarily, but, but these tropes are very common. You know, failure is perseverance. Uh, the idea is that you can build character through failure. This idea of grit, um, you know, all of these sorts of things. You don't get anywhere if you don't fail and get up again. I, I think, um, isn't there a great uh, quote? Supposedly, Winston Churchill said it, although apparently he never did say it. But uh, success is the act of failing again and again and getting up, something like that, you know. Uh, oh, failing again and again with no lack of enthusiasm. So all of those things are great. I'm, I'm all for those. If you have someone on the phone who's, you know, just had a great loss in business, love or sport or something like that, you, you give them that sort of pep talk. But I do think there's a deeper meaning of failure, a deeper value of failure. And it's the one that I'm interested in. And it's easiest to see, I think, in science, but I think it's true in other areas as well. So, so failure, I, I love this quote by Gertrude Stein. I'm sorry, again, I'm, I'm, I'm using quotes maybe too much, but she said, a real failure needs no excuse. It is an end in itself. And that, I think, mm. is extremely important, right? It's, it's not this failure leads to success. Failure is not important retroactively. It needs to be important because we've integrated it into the process, into the very process of making progress. And, and it's not just because you learn from a failure and you do something different. You don't always learn from a failure, except that you have to move in a different way or something like that. So, so there are two ways I think failure is especially important that we don't take account of typically. One is, at least in science, I think it gives the, it gives the operation credibility. Science is known for being anti-authoritarian, right? Show me. I mean, do an experiment. I don't just take anybody's word for anything. We don't believe that the church, the state, or Aristotle now is the source of truth. We know that experiments are where you learn things. And so, um, and so in that sense, um, failure makes the process more credible because, it, because experiments mostly fail, because it's not infallible. If it was infallible, we would be the Pope or whoever, you know, is supposed to be infallible these days. So I think it, leads, it, lends, it lends credence to the successes we do have in science when we fail at a very high rate. So that's thing number one. The second thing that failure does, and this to some extent goes back to ignorance. So assuming now that we've convinced everybody in the first half of our discussion that ignorance is the most important place to be playing in, then the deepest kind of ignorance is not only what you don't know, it's what you don't know you don't know, right? The so-called unknown unknown, a phrase that was made unfortunately popular by Donald H. Rumsfeld, the defense secretary of the U.S., after 9-11, who, you know, was explaining why things went so sideways in Afghanistan and Iraq because of all the unknown unknowns. And he was roundly ridiculed for that, but, but actually it's a very clever thing to say. And I will say to set the record straight, he didn't make it up. The first time I've ever, uh, I did a lot of research on this, and I, the first time I found it in print was actually in a poem by D.H. Lawrence. Uh, in 1917 called New Heaven and Earth. It's a rather long narrative poem that I don't necessarily recommend um, to anybody, but near the end of it, I can't remember the exact stanza now either right off the top of my head, but near the end of it, he, it's a poem about the transition from this life to an afterlife. And he says, my hand is reaching out, touching the unknown, the real unknown, the unknown unknown. And so how do you get to this unknown unknown? I mean, how do you get to what you don't even know you don't even know? And I would say the way you do that is failure. You do an experiment and it doesn't work. It fails in some way. It doesn't just, it's not just a total catastrophe, but it fails in some 
odd and unexpected way. Well, now you know that there was something you didn't know you didn't know when you set this experiment up and you have to go back. Now the game is really on. Now it's really interesting. I think Isaac Asimov, get another quote, I'm sorry. But I think Isaac Asimov said correctly that the phrase a scientist wants to hear when he or she looks at data is not eureka, but, oh, well, that's weird. Because that means there's something more to be found out here. There's something more mm -hmm. interesting in there. So those are the two ideas of failure that, that I like more than the sort of grit notion of failure. You also talk about failing to define failure. Can you tell us about what that means and, and the implications? Yeah, so I, I guess the, that's a sort of a big question. So, so let me take a chunk of it maybe. I think one of the things that uh, we've been talking about failing to define failure to some extent here and that, that I don't want to define it as grit or perseverance or fail better or fail, fail fast, mm -hmm. fail, whatever it is. That the, that that the tech industry uses these days, you know, um, it's it's not just failure to get to success, but rather failure is part of the process. And then the question I think becomes, well, how much failure? How much failure is appropriate? I, I don't really suggest you fail a hundred percent of the time. I don't think that's a good idea either. But I think we underestimate the amount of failure that's acceptable. So. For example, uh, to use a biological example, if you don't mind, some biologist in evolution or, or in general, in, let me talk about predator-prey relations, rather. Um, in predator-prey relations, we have these, you know, these animals that are at the top of the food chain, as it were. Evolution's real big winners, you know, lions and tigers, the big cats, uh, um, hawks, uh, killer whales, things like this, you know, these, these sharks. The real, you know, the monsters of the midway, as it were. And so, um, and so you, you generally think, I think, or most people think, I did, I have to say, that anytime they got a little hungry, they just went out and bagged some nice juicy rabbit or deer or whatever it was they were after that day. But in fact, when you look through the rather extensive predator-prey literature, you find out that these big animals, these top-of-the-food-chain critters, are actually successful on fewer than 25% of their attempts. 75% of the time, they fail to catch the critter thereafter, which is why there's so many prey animals still out there, right? Otherwise, you know, they'd have emptied the world of them. So 75% of the time, they get away. And that's, you know, these predators are operating kind of on the fringe of the herd as well. They're looking for the old and the sick. I mean, not really, you know. And so even at that point, they're only 25% successful, a 75% failure rate, and you're still at the top of the food chain. So who would have thought that? Who would think that you could fail 75% of the time and still be number one, as it were? I think that's an important concept that we don't give people. We think failures are catastrophic automatically, you know? Yeah, but the prize is worth it. Yeah. That's the key, isn't it? Be at the mm. top of it. So do you, do you have a, a failure toolkit that you kind of, with, with uh, you know, ways, concepts, and, and ways of thinking about failure to find problems and solutions faster? Um, that's a good question. Not, not really. I mean, except that one, one wants to try and think of, to go back to ignorance a little bit, questions that are, that are likely to provide a failure. Um, I, I think putting together an experiment that is likely to fail, it sounds counterintuitive or sounds counterproductive, but it often isn't. Sometimes it's the best experiment you have. You know, you know this, this experiment is not really going to work. I can't believe this will work. But we should try it because the way it doesn't work could turn out to be interesting. And, and I think it's important to be open to those sorts of trials. 
that you sometimes try things just to prod it, knowing that it's it's going to fail. It's it's almost surely going to fail. But it, but if you're lucky, it'll fail in an interesting way. You may not be lucky. It may fail in a terribly uninteresting way. But but you have to be open to that. That that all right. So that I'll just unpack that a little bit. So fail in an interesting way provides you with this access to the unknown unknown. Yeah. Is there any way in which you can you can like, engineer from, that? Well, yeah. I mean, like, I, I can I see how to develop a, a whole range of really bad experiments, but like to find <laughs> one, <laughs> is there any way improving that? I mean, I suppose what you're trying to do is you're trying to challenge your assumptions about what a good experiment looks like, aren't you? In, in... Yes, I think that's a that's a very good way to put it, actually. Um, so there is this notion that runs around science a lot, especially that uh, that serendipity is the way many discoveries were made. You know that um, that serendipity, and, and you can you can go to the Nobel Prize website and you'll see three quarters of the statements by scientists say, "Well, you know, we we got lucky." Whether that's out of some false sense of humility or whatever, or maybe they believe it. I mean, we all believe it that at some point we made a discovery that we weren't expecting, and so on and so on, and so. You could ascribe this to serendipity. I, I don't actually believe in serendipity because I've never seen a lawyer make a serendipitous scientific discovery, you know, or a scientist make a serendipitous legal argument, you know. You have to be working hard on something and believing that there's something worthwhile to work on there and then be open to the possibility of something counterintuitive occurring. And then you have serendipity. So I think Louis Pasteur famously said, chance favors the prepared mind. Pasteur was a, was a great beneficiary of serendipity, of chance discoveries, of accidental discoveries. But he's right that it favors the prepared mind. One has to be prepared to see serendipity. I would say the same thing about failure. That's my corollary to Pasteur is that failure favors the prepared mind. So some people will fail, fail, fail and throw the thing away and just say, oh, well, that's no good. I'll do something different. But other people will fail and say, well, that was an interesting failure. Maybe there's something I can dig a little deeper in here. And so, you know, I wish there was a prescription, but honestly, there's just not really a prescription. If there was a prescription, you know, I'd be, I'd be selling it, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do your passions outside of science um, help you to see the, the you know the world in different ways how, how, how does that inform your thinking well I, I mean everybody brings their own personal background to the way they think I, I think I was quite fortunate accidentally I mean to know to no work of my own really to have had these sort of two careers to have been part of the arts and humanities before I was uh, before I was, became a scientist and and I for me I think it does inform it a tremendous I mean one of the reasons I took the job that I took at Columbia University, I was prior to that at Yale Medical School. That's where I was. I've been a postdoc and assistant professor there, and I could have stayed there. It's, there's nothing wrong with Yale. There's nothing wrong with Yale Medical School. It's a great institution. But I came to Columbia specifically because it was a university position. It was a college position. It wasn't a medical school. And now medical schools are great places to be a scientist. You have nothing but hundreds of other scientists around you. It's very focused. It's very intense and all the rest of that. But I really wanted to be in a university. I wanted to be in that situation where there were humanists, there were classicists, there were historians, philosophers, theologians around me as well. And I always say I, I hate serving on committees in my department 
because we have the same arguments for, you know, 30 years we've been having the same old arguments and they never go away. They're like, they're like a bad marriage, you know, or, or maybe a good marriage. I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe that's how a good marriage works. You have the same argument for 30 years, but, but you stay together. So at least, at least you <laughs> figured out what that. the I'll right argument is to have. Yes. <laughs> but so I hate departmental committees because they don't go anywhere. But I actually enjoy serving on university committees because I, I serve on committees then with with these other people in other fields and, and they have a completely different perspective about some problem or some issue. And I find it fascinating to do that. So, um, yeah, you know, nobody has a, uh, no, nobody has a, um, a purchase on truth to the exclusion of anyone else. There are just too many ways to get at it. I always love to, uh, I'll finish with a story that's a sort of a joke, I guess, because I think it's maybe indicative of this. It, it's a, the story is called, um, uh, my dog, and, and it's about a, it's not about my dog, actually, but, um, but it's about a young boy named Tim who's in the sixth grade, and, and his teacher gives him a, an assignment to write an essay. So he writes an essay called My Dog, and he hands the essay in, and the next day the teacher comes back to him and says, Tim, your essay on My Dog is exactly the same as your brother's was. Did you copy it? And Tim says, no, ma'am, it's the same dog. <laughs> now, right, we all recognize that's ridiculous, of course, right? There's dozens of ways to describe the same dog. And that's what's, I think, so important to recognize. Science is not the only way to describe something. Philosophy can be, religion can be, um, economics can be. There are many, many ways to look at these things. And why not take advantage of every one of them? We have this fabulous brain sitting up there that we're feeding, you know, vast amounts of energy into. Let me tell you, most of what you eat goes to your brain. It's a hog. And so why not use it every way possible? I can't see any reason not to take that opportunity. Hmm. Well, this has been such a delightful conversation, so informative. Um, I, I wish we could just keep talking for another couple of hours here but uh, I want to be mindful of your time and say thank you so much for for coming on thank you so much this has been an absolute joy talking to you I I, I thought it would be but it, it's exceeded my expectations by a long way brilliant thank you well thank you I this has been a great conversation I've really enjoyed this such a pleasure to meet you until next time the world is evolving are you are you